the average the average citizen sees maybe one, two critical incidents throughout their lifetime, something that might affect them given post-traumatic stress. A police officer in a 20-year career is going to see upwards of 800. They pull them over, they got no paperwork, but they got a fat roll of cash. And why should I go bring them in? I'm making $25,000 a year having to live in New York City. Why should I go take them in? I'm just gonna take a little bit here. I'm gonna take a little bit here. And then the first time you take it, second time's much easier. First time's the hard part. Second time, pretty easy. You already got away with it once. And one of the first autopsies I ever went to was a 43 year old man and he's on the table and he's like this, he had a, he had a heart attack. But I remember, <laughs> he got to develop this really sick, dark gallows humor. I remember looking at the guy, I'm like, doc, you don't need to do the autopsy. He's like, what are you talking about? And I said, I already know what he died of, he died of smallpox. Once they cut that open, you see more blood coming out. Then once they do the hedge clippers, then the blood just pours out because their heart exploded. I remember that, that visceral feeling inside of me when I'm looking at this person going, you did this to a little kid. Because again, going back to, to the way I grew up, you want to you kill him. So I go in my office. I had a um, Chief Special 38 nickel plated. I had hollow point bullets in it. I uh, put it in my mouth, write the note put the gun in my mouth and I'm, I'm bawling, crying. And I just, I'm, I'm going to die. All right. We have got Kevin Donaldson. You may have seen him on Matt Cox's channel or soft white underbelly two of my favorite channels. And he has a hell of a story. From the other side, being a police officer, he was a police officer who got in some very hurry situations, ended up with PTSD from the you know the adrenaline spikes, the the, the trauma of the things he went through, and he, he he tells a very moving story. We're going to get to shortly before we go and get his backstory about how he was almost shot. Now, if you want to contact. Kevin, his links are all in the description box below this video. He's doing speaking engagements. He's got a podcast. So please support our guests. It incentivizes them to come back on and, and love us all the more. So huge thank you for coming on, Kevin. Well, thank you so much for having me, Sean. I've, I've been doing a lot of research about you, aside from all the stuff that I've already learned. But, you know, you know I, I found that we got a lot more in common than, <laughs> than we're probably going to want to admit. Definitely. Now, Instead of just going, you know, back to the beginning, I like to start the podcast out in the thick of the action, and, th and then we can go back. And I think the story that you told Matt Cox about almost getting killed, are we okay to start with that story, please? Mm, so you're talking specifically about July 10th, 2013. Yes. Um, you know, police work is, uh, I've said this so many times, that it, there was a show, there's a show in the States called Everybody Loves Raymond. And his his brother is the police officer. He describes police works probably the most perfect in the world, where he says it's mind-numbing boredom interrupted by brief moments of horror. So I worked in a small suburban town, and there were nights like if you go in, if you're working a Sunday midnight or a weekday midnight, 
there is nothing going on. You're just watching deer cross the street. You're watching raccoons pick trash out of the garbage cans. So you, 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 I don't want to say you pray for it, but you pray for anything. The crack of the radio, you just want something to go do to keep your mind occupied. July 10th was a uh, Wednesday night. I was working a 7 p.m. to a 7 a.m. shift. And it was just like any other night. You know, we have our certain duties that we have to do. We have to pull unlocked doors, make sure everything's locked up, pretty much put the town to bed. And I pull up next to my partner and I remember saying to him, God, it's just so bad tonight. There is not nothing was over the radio. There was nothing to do. I said, just give me an alarm call. Give me something. And we part our ways and I go to start doing my checks my uh, plaza checks and here it is crack the radio start responding to this address unknown emergency open 911 call with an open not when 911 the way it works in in this, in new jersey is we have to respond whether it's a missile whether it's a uh, whether it's a true uh, uh, just somebody fooling around we have to respond but when they with a drop 911 usually take it a little bit more serious and you could tell by the way, it was dispatched that there was something going on. What I found out later is the dispatch heard, um, heard arguing in the background. So what happened is the victim calls 911, throws the phone down, lets everybody listen. We go there, you know, balls to the wall. Um, you're doing 70, 80 miles an hour, the lights on, no sirens, because you don't want to alert anybody of your presence. And we pull into a little townhouse complex and, um, we go up to the door. There's three of us that go up to the door and we can hear yelling on the other side. So we developed this plan, this um, makeshift plan. My partner goes around the back. I stay in the front and I grab out of my trunk uh, what's called a Halligan bar. It's kind of like a, it's like a fireman's crowbar. I are on a signal. We're going to, we have to get to whatever's going on on a signal. I start banging the door and you can hear the guy in the other side say, don't come in here. Don't come in here. So I'm trying to pry the door open. And contrary to what everybody thinks, I just want to, I want to break a myth here. Police officers do not kick down doors. It's, it's next to impossible to kick down a steel door. All right. You're going to break your leg. So it's very difficult, but there's a way to do it. Out of nowhere. I hear pop, 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 four shots. What the fuck just happened? You, you just sort of pull back. They're like, holy shit, what the hell is this? This is a small suburban town. It's a very affluent town. This stuff doesn't happen. And, you know, I had been in some hairy situations prior to this, but nothing, nothing of this nature. So I pull back and I'm with another guy. Uh, other cars are starting to show up at this time. So we go around the back. As we go around the back, we get on this little, like it's a nine by nine little privacy deck in the back. It's a center or actually it was an end unit, but there was only one way in and one way out of this place. So he's either coming in the front or he's coming in the back, but he already exchanged gunfire with, with police. So we go on to this little nine by nine deck and I get over into the corner. What I think is a very strong tactical position. Never once any hesitation, never once any fear. And I'm not a big tough guy. Like I'm not trying to paint myself as this heroic guy, but this is my job. And there's two different types of people in this world that those that are willing to stand and fight and those that are willing to run away. We get on this back deck. I get off into the corner. What I think is just the, the, the best tactical position. Meanwhile, in reality, it's the worst position because it's the furthest away from the exit. Um, my cover is patio furniture. It's wire patio furniture. 
and we can't see anybody. We can see the victim huddled over in the corner and she's crying. She's, she's in, in like the fetal position, but we can't see the guy who was exchanging gunfire with the other officers. So we come up with a really another brilliant plan, which in retrospect probably wasn't the best one. We were going to throw a patio chair through the sliding glass door. As we do this, I'm standing there with my gun drawn. I see this flash. I see this bright, the brightest flash I've ever seen in my life. I feel if you've ever shot a gun, uh, you, you get blowback from the gun powder. Like you can feel actually little pellets hitting your face. And I feel my left ear wiggle. So what that was, was the bullet. The guy was standing behind a pillar, puts his gun like this and fires. The bullet misses my ear by what they suspect is about an eighth of an inch, wiggles my ear. I hit the deck. The other officers who were on the deck, there was two other officers on the deck. They're over towards the exit. They're able to get off. They're, they're able to get off real easy. I got to hit the ground and now I'm stuck because the exit's about six feet away. I'd have to crawl and I can, the minute I crawl past that window, he, he's got me. I'm dead to rights. I, I have no idea whether I'm shot because you always hear those stories that you don't know whether you're shot. You know, you, you feel, I feel some pain in my shoulder. I look down, I see blood everywhere. I'm like, oh shit. But what I did was I, I fell on glass. And to this day, I still have some glass in my arms. And, uh, you know, you, you think in that situation that you'd panic, but in reality, everything get, got real calm, real quiet. You think your ears would be ringing because you, you just had a bullet whiz past your ear, but I'm fine. Like, I, I'm, I'm like, okay. You know, I, I start going through the checklist in my head. As a matter of fact, so police officers that we on our radios will take our keys and we'll put our keys over top of the antenna of the radio. My keys fell off when I hit the ground. I was able, I had the mental acuity to pick those keys up, put them back on my antenna. I thought of my kids. I have, a, I, at the time, I had a, a seven-month-old. I had a three-year-old. I thought of my wife, who's going to have to raise these, these two kids by themselves. And I'm, I'm getting prepared to die because, okay, this guy shot at police twice. There's no reason why he's not going to shoot again. And um, I said, okay, all right, motherfucker. If, you're gonna, if we're going to do this, you're coming with me. You, I'm taking you, too. So I get into a prone shooting position and I'm yelling the whole time. I'm like, get, get out of here, get out of here. This is going to go. This is going to go. Uh, and, and by the way, a much more colorful vernacular than I'm using here. Um, but nothing happens. But in reality, it's like 45 seconds that I'm trapped. I'm absolutely trapped. I'm figuring I'm going to die. Very calm, very clear. Uh, I hear officers behind me saying, are you shot? And I said, I don't know. I don't know. Just cover the door. Just cut. like, I really didn't even care. Uh, one of the officers was able to grab the rear of my belt and sort of help me out while another officer covered the door. So I was able to get out. Now at this, at this time, the, the suspect, we don't see it, but the suspect gets upstairs and we're able to get the victim out. So the job's over. We did our job. We, we saved the life. He can stay up there for four years. We don't care you know, whatever. Um, but the funny thing is, and I want to go back to, there's, there's a couple different types of people, those that run away from danger and those that run towards it. I had a supervisor there who pretty much left me for dead. Uh, he ran so far away and his first thought was to call administration, to call the, the chief of police and tell him what happened. 
I'll never forgive that guy. I'll never forgive him. After that, we hold post for like two hours while the, the hostage negotiation or the negotiating team comes in and they, they eventually talk him out. And then I go to the hospital and, you know, I get some glass removed from my arms. I'm not shot. And I'm thinking, wow, that, that was, that was one of the best jobs I ever did. I'm, I'm elated. Like I'm, I'm thrilled. We got to save this woman who was, if you saw her face, Sean, it, it was sheer, sheer terror. So I'm so happy about this job. I'm so proud that I was able to stand up and do all this stuff. It, it's an amazing feeling, you know, and, and I went home that night and I was amped up. I went for a run. I got home at about five in the morning, ran and then went to sleep. And, you know, I woke up to about 50 phone calls because cops are like, uh, <laughs> it's like a big sewing circle. Hey, what happened? What happened? What happened from every person you've ever met in your entire life? And everything was fine. Everything was fine. And, um, you know, so that job was over, but that wasn't the worst of it. What happened to the perpetrator? So he was able, his name was Anthony Vocatoro, who, believe it or not, one of my friends um, is friends with. Um, I don't know if you're aware who uh, John Elite is. You have had him on the channel? Okay, so John knows Anthony Vocatoro, and I know John. Um, I, I was the host of his show for uh, the co-host of his show for quite a while. And we tried to put it together, but I, I always wanted to come fast face to face with Anthony to find out what his trauma is. Cause I used to be so mad at him, but I'm not mad anymore because I can't imagine what this guy was going through. I mean, what, what the deal was, is he was an ex boyfriend of the victim and they broke up and he was hurt. He was hurt. And, I didn't understand those emotions when emotions get involved in anything, anything can happen. And, um, you know, I, I, I had to forgive him because it wasn't, he wasn't thinking clearly because I understand that now, because moving forward after my shooting, I was in those same, I, I was in that same mindset that he was probably in, but he, um, they got him out and, uh, he, this is this is gonna this is gonna tie into your story because I know you're you're a lot into prison reform for nonviolent offenders. Um, he was sentenced to six years. He did four. I know people such as um, like uh, Seth Ferranti. Seth Ferranti got 25 years and got caught with no drugs. First time vi- nonviolent offender gets 25 years. A guy who shoots at a police officer and tries to kill him gets six and does four. Are you kidding me? I, I have a problem with that. I have a huge problem. And I heard you talk about that on, on one of your shows. It doesn't make sense. The prison, the, the system in the U S is broken. If that's what's going to happen. Any questions on this story, Bruno? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Kevin, that being said, you know, how you feel about, uh, you know, what the guy got and, you know, what other people get, just like with us, how do you feel as a whole about convicts themselves or people who get locked up now that you're outside of being a police officer? You know, I know you're into helping people and everything else, but, you know, going forward after that, after that incident, were you biased at all against people? Uh, how did you feel in, in, in your mindset? How did, how did, you know, how did you deal with criminals after that? Was it, was it altered in any way? 
Well, even when I was on, even when I when I first got on, you know, there were some old timers out there used to call them shitums. Okay, I don't know if you ever heard that term being around New York. It's it's a really negative term towards people who may be down on their light, their, their luck. Or I never took, um, especially after I was on for a while, I never took the criminal versus police officer as an adversarial role. You chose your path. I chose my path. We happen to meet in the middle. You're going to, you know, the, the there's consequences to your actions. There's consequences to my actions. So I never took it personally. And now knowing, um, knowing what I know um, about knowing certain really hard core criminals, there's, there's a reason why they chose that path. I don't hold anything against them. Um, you know, but I, I, one of the things I do, if I do talk to somebody who seems to be going down that path, I try to teach them chess. And I know that's going to sound crazy. You try to teach them chess. So the theory behind chess is you have to look at your opponent and try to anticipate four or five moves ahead of time. And if you can get that person to think four or five moves ahead, it's either going to make them a really good criminal or it's going to maybe make them second guess their life choices. So you, you, if you teach them how to think critically, you may be able to stop uh, some, some of the bad decisions or, or some of the situations that they put themselves in. I don't hold anything against anybody that cho- chooses a life of crime. All right. you, I, you, you yourself almost chose a life of crime. If we, if we go back to the beginning, you grew up in Atlanta City area with gangsters and became a thief as a kid. Can you tell us about that? I stole everything I could get my hands on <laughs> everything. And, you know, there's, there's reasons behind it, which I'm, I'm now starting to realize, but if I walked into a store, I'm cut, whatever I paid for, I'm getting at least five times of that on the back end, at least five times of that. Um, you know, if I bought a pack of gum, I got candy bars, I got everything. Cause I was just, I was almost like a kleptomaniac where it was, there was a feeling to it. You, you know, that, that rush of, and, and Bruno, I don't know what your crimes are, but Sean, I know, I know what you did. There's a rush to break in the law. I, I get it. I understand it. And I under, and maybe that's what made me a little bit better of a police officer is to understand how, how a criminal mind operates. There's a rush involved into it. And it, that's why a lot of the, the, the best criminals as, as youngsters became the best cops because they can think that way and they understand it. And if you can think that way and understand it, there's no reason in the world why you need to hold anything against them. But the people I grew up in around Atlantic city, they were just, they were real serious guys. Are you able to say any of the names of those guys or are they, is that. That's the, uh, Oh yeah, sure. I mean, most of them are dead, but um, I grew up around the Merlinos, the Scarfos, Nicky Scarfo senior was the boss of Philly mob. And he, when, when he was, um, when he was a captain, he got exiled to Atlantic city. So, he brought his whole family over. I went to school with a lot of his kids and um, his underboss was uh, Phil, a guy named Phil Leonetti. And Phil is a lot like you. Okay. So Phil could have been a landscaper and he would have been just fine. But Phil had, um, he's good looking guy, ultra bright and just didn't fit the typical gangster mobster lifestyle. And because of that, he, uh, he was able to be so successful, but he also was able to see the hypocrisy behind it. You know, Nikki, Nikki was, um, <laughs> Nikki was crazy. Nikki Scarfo senior. He was crazy. And, you know, he, I know he just died in 2017. Um, but there's repercussions to that as well. His when you say, when you son, say, when you say he was crazy, have you got an example of something he did? Nikki was about five foot two. 
and Nikki had the little man's disease and he always had to show how tough he was. Uh, there was a story that I had heard. I think it was in uh, Phil Leonetti's book, Mafia Prince, where Phil's about 13 years old. He's going back and, and he's showing Phil like they're going to drop something off. I think been, he's showing him guns and stuff like this. But I remember nobody just nobody crossed him. Nobody crossed him because if you look twice, if you look cross-eyed at him, he'd kill you. So there was a guy who was high up. His, uh, his father was um, Phil Testa, who used to be the boss. He got blown up on his front steps in Philly. Uh, his name was Salvatore Testa. Sally was a Sally was an ultra loyal, good guy, like really good, good guy. And he started to get some notoriety. So when Nikki saw the notoriety, he saw a power problem. So what did he do? He made up some stuff about Sally. And sure enough, Sally got found on the side of the road. Um, but that was Nikki. That was Nikki. But as a kid, Nikki was like God to us. You know, you saw him and you're like, wow, this is Nicky Scarfo. Oh, my God. But he was nice to the kids because it's a grooming thing more than anything else. You familiar with these characters, Bruno? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, they all tie in, uh, Kevin. You know, if you listen, if you listen to Sammy, when he talks, he talks about stories about, you know, Nicky and uh, the guy was a legend. But I also wanted to ask you. um, you know, pertaining to the last question that I had, that being said, what you said about, you know, um, you're not being biased in anything. A lot of people don't realize that where we grew up, um, the cops are just neighborhood guys, just like we are. You know what I mean? And people used to ask me when I got locked up, oh, man, I hate these cops. You know, uh, these cops are this and that. Just like you said, you know, with me, I don't hate cops. I grew up with cops. I, you know, my, my buddies either went, just like you said, we either went the cop way or we went the other way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So when you talk about, you know, uh, all these guys, you know, we grew up the same way. I grew up working for wise guys. They were like God, you know what I mean? So how did you not get drawn in like, you know, every other kid in the neighborhood, you're saying these guys are legends. I want to do what they want to do. I want to, you know, I want to be them. How did you get out of that? I moved away and I felt that I had to move away. I got caught into a bad crew of people and, you know, we were, we were so brazen in everything we did. I, I, we, there was a house that was under construction and I was driving at the time. So, but I was, I guess I was about 17. We, we went into the house. We stole the hot tub. Why would you steal a hot tub? What am I going to do with it? What am I going to put it in the woods and fill it with water? You know, why would I do that? But that was, and, and it just progressed. And it was, then it was cars. And then it was, you know, just anything that, that was an easy mark, an easy score. And you can see how that lifestyle starts getting, starts growing, starts growing. I was able to identify this because listen, I lived, there was another reason why I left too, because I lived with a monster at home. And um, I, I had to get out of that life. I had to reinvent myself because I was, there was a reason why I was stealing, why I was searching for that adrenaline, just the same way every other criminal, whether it's an admiration thing, whether it's you think that that's the right way to go, you're, you're searching for your place in this world. And, but what I saw with those gangsters, especially, there was two ways out. There was two ways they were going. It was either going to go to jail or you're going to get killed. Either one, not to mention I'm not Italian, so I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. Um, 
all I can do is be the, the crazy outsider. That, so there, there would have been my role in the mafia to be the, the, the crazier enforcer. And listen, I, it wasn't for me. It wasn't my, it wasn't my lifestyle. I, I identified that pretty quick that that's not where I want to go. Cause I don't do well in confined spaces. Both of you, my hats off to you guys. Cause I don't know how you sat in a cell. Mm-hmm. I went to rehab and I lost my mind. I, you know, if, if the viewers want to know how we sat in a cell, check out Bruno's interviews on the channel. I'll put a link in the description box. Kevin, you mentioned you lived with a monster. What, what did your parents do? How did they meet? Did you have siblings? What was your home life like as a kid? Well, this is this is a dance I got to do because there are people that are still living. But um, I had I have one brother who was also a police officer. Um, I had a mother who was who was broken, and I had a, a father who was an absolute monster. Um, aside from the the physical, verbal, and emotional abuse, which by far is emotional abuse is by far the, the worst. Um, there was, there was some sexual abuse by a family member. Uh, one, I've recently one, come to... one, one second, Kevin, I've got a legal restriction on the channel whereby, because you've said that now I have to ask you, do you waive your anonymity? Meaning basically you're okay for this to be published by us. Sure. Sure. You do, it's time. You do, you do waive your anonymity. Yes. Okay. Yes. You. Yes. Cause there's, there's, um, there's nobody left to prosecute. Um, it's something that I've been holding. I I haven't talked about it. It's something that I've been holding in a long time. I had, um, I blocked it out quite a bit. Um, and, and to this day, I only remember bits and pieces. It's like watching a movie in the middle of a, a a heavy fog, you know, where the fog will lift for certain snapshots and then the fog will cover it back over. Um, and a lot of this came out after my shooting because I was in such a real dark place and going through therapy and things of that nature. Uh, I had no idea that one of the one of the telltale signs that somebody has has experienced sexual abuse is theft. Or um, I was a firebug as a kid. That's another telltale sign. I learned this by a friend of mine, a guy's name's Clark Fredericks, who, who was raped when he was 12 by a Boy Scout leader. And um he, he, he says, yeah, well, yeah, here's, he's talking to me. He's like, yeah, here's, here's one of the signs. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm, that was me. Like, and I knew I, I had recollections of, of the abuse that I, that I experienced, but I was a firebug. I was a thief. I stole everything like we were talking about, but um, that stuff really like, I don't understand people's minds when they, when they do that stuff to kids, like, is it a power thing? I still don't understand it, but I have to deal with it. I have to deal with it because I've been holding it in for so long and it's just really, it's really an unhealthy thing to hold in. Um, you know, I, I use, I, 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 I should be trademarking this, but it's the, the, um, the prairie fire. So years ago, I read this book on a business trip about how to, how to survive certain worst case scenarios. One of them was a prairie fire. And this one, this one stood out at me. I read it on an airplane. And it's um, when you see a fire coming towards you, you, it's human instinct to run away from the fire. But with a prairie fire, if you do that, it's going to grow and grow and grow. And it's ultimately going to consume you and you're going to die. But all you had to do is run straight to it. And then you get through to the other side, you get through, you get through a little damaged, but it's going to, the duration of that trauma is going to be, or that, that pain is going to be so much shorter. So I've done that with my shooting. 
but I've never, I've never faced my, my past, my sexual abuse. And so for me, it's, it's a little bit of time, you know, I have to practice what I preach and I preach that embracing that suffering. And that's why I, I do my podcast. I teach people how to, I, I don't teach people. I, I, I walk through them and I, I show how their, their little trauma and their damage is their strength. You use that as your strength. Like you guys went to prison. Well, if you turn that, that really shitty time in your life around, it becomes a strength that you, it's like building a callus around your body that nobody can ever hurt you because you already hurt yourself. So I'm, you know, I'm not crazy about talking about it, but it's time. It's time. Well, we're campaigning on this channel for an end to the war on drugs and mass incarceration and for the predators to be locked up for much bigger sentences than they are because it's the public is absolutely disgusted with the things these people do and the hundreds of victims they have and hardly anything happens to them. But um, I'll get off the soap, soapbox and, and, and keep going with the story here <laughs> then. So uh, school then, did that affect your school? Um, I, I was pretty bright, but I was lazy. You know, I, I didn't, uh, I, I was, I'm, a, I'm able to read something once and remember it. So I would read something once and I put it down and everybody asked why I never brought my books home because I didn't want to, because I didn't want to, I didn't, really didn't care. Um, but I also knew that if I didn't get good grades, I was going to get the shit beat out of me at home. And, you know, I, I could take a beating, but then you, you get hammered emotionally. You know, you're no good. You're, you're, you're dummy. You, you know, I, I got straight A's in school and I did well in school, but you're not. So you're nothing like me. I did well in school, but not as good as I could have. I could have been so much smarter if I had the right foundation. Because you know what? If you try to if you try to build a house on on a on a broken foundation, it's going to be a shitty house. You know, and if, that that was me. I had a broken foundation. So as I went through life, I was constantly trying to find my way in this world. Okay, so maybe if I'm maybe if I'm the best thief in the world, or I'm I'm the badass kid on the, on the block or when, after I went to college, maybe I'll be the best football player. I'll be in the best shape or I'll be the smartest. We're always searching for that stuff, you know, because you have that, you don't, you're looking for that foundation to build your, build your house on. And I think that's what happens with a lot of criminals. So I don't, I, I don't disagree with you on their, the uh, unfairness of how certain crimes are punished. Like I, I'm, I'm an advocate for that as well. It's like the death penalty. I don't believe in the death penalty. I'm a police officer who don't believe, doesn't believe in a death penalty because it doesn't do anything. It takes an average 10 years to get somebody executed, millions and millions of dollars. And well, how many people get executed a year? Three, maybe. So what's it do? It's a general deterrent. So why, why, even, why even waste the money? So how did you end up in the cops? Well, I went to college and, um, you know, I sort of, I wanted to be a school teacher. Actually, I went to college for um, theological studies. Because I thought, you know, I, even though I was, I was getting all this crap at home, I was really tied into faith. I found a lot of, I found some interest in faith, but I sort of lost my faith in college. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to be a school teacher. I get into being a school teacher and I hated it. Oh my God, I hated it. I hated the other teachers so bad because they're so rotten to the kids. The, you go into the teacher's lounge and they're talking, hey, Johnny did this. What a little asshole he is. And you know, I can't believe I got to go in there and teach these little son of a bitches. And it was really just a toxic environment for me. So I got out after a year, 
I put my resignation in. I said, I'm done. I can't do this. And then I bounced around from job to job and I'm in the gym and, uh, and somebody comes up to me. He's like, have you ever thought about being a cop? I said, you know, what? my, my brother, my brother was the guy who was taking tests every week to try to become a cop. Like there's, there's a couple of people that become cops. There's the guy who is, is a power trip. And then there's the guy who's shoved in lockers. And then there's the, the other ones who see it as the purpose or it's just a job for me. It was just a job. I'm like, okay, well, I got a pension. I get, I get health benefits. It's a pretty good salary. I'll never get rich. But so I was offered this thing. They're like, come take the test. I did very well on the test and I got hired. I'm like, okay, you know what? This is just another part of my, my story. But when I got that job, God, I love that job. I loved that job because it's not arresting criminals. That's, that's, you do it, you know, but then there, you know, there was some fun stuff too. It's like the car chases and stuff. They're fun. They are fun. Uh, the adrenaline rushes. But when you see somebody in front of you who is genuinely in need and they're looking up at you and they got nowhere else to turn and they're, they're like, yeah, you're, you're my guy, you're my savior. I can't tell you what kind of feeling that is. You know, when, when you go out and, and you talk to people about your experiences and you reach that one person, you know, that feeling, <laughs> you know, it, well, that, that was police work. So you both have a, you both have a window into what being a police officer really is. And I love that job more than anything. And then while I was in a police academy, 9-11, obviously today's the day, um, 9-11 happened. So the whole police world changed. And it was easy to be a cop back then because everybody loved us. <laughs> you know, we were, we were the heroes at that time. It's a little different now. And, um, you know, I, I, you're working on somebody, you, you, you save a life. Uh, or you're there at the last moments of somebody's life and their family members are there and they're looking to you for help. How do you deal with that? Well, you, you be sympathetic as possible. You do everything you possibly can. And then when that person comes up, even if the, you saved the person or didn't save the person, that person comes up and, and thanks you afterwards. That's better than any drug that could ever be taken in the world. What you got, Bruno, is starting out as a cop questions. <laughs> yeah. So let me, let me ask you this, Kevin. I mean, we all know that you know, given one person all of that control and all of that power, how did you find the other cops, you know, like the older guys, were they, was there a lot of racism? Was there a lot of in the locker room? Hey, I'm going to go get this POS today. You know what I mean? And how did you deal with that? Because I know what happens. It happens, you know, with, with our side, you know what I mean? There's all kinds of bias going on. Did you find that there was a lot of that going on? And how did you feel about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the t <laughs> I don't I, actually I could say this because there's there's nobody that's I won't mention any names. So there's a couple terms that I used when I first came on, like um, they were like, oh, there's a unit walking down the street. I'm like, unit. What's a unit? I have not a racist bone in my body. Like, I, I, do, don't, I don't care if you're an asshole. I'm going to treat you like an asshole. If you're a good guy, I'm going to treat you like a good guy. I said, so what's a unit? It's an unidentified N-word in town. That's how, that's how we were told. Or uh, an, a surrounding town. And this happened over, yeah, bad, right? So in a surrounding town, um, I guess one of the cops pulled over a, a car full of black people. And they said, uh, the code was 1039. I'll be 1039 with a load of coal. Wow. Bad, right? 
as bad, right? And that, that was commonplace. That was very, very commonplace. I was very fortunate because the guy who, who I was hired with was, you know, I'm six foot four. He was six foot four. He's a black guy. I'm a white guy. And we became like brothers. So, and this was right around the time that a documentary came out called Driving While Black. So uh, DWB. So we would get that often. And a lot of times it was a deflection because they were doing something wrong. They said, oh, you pull me over because I'm black. No, I, you know, I didn't pull you over because you're black. And my partner would come around who, who you know, I would have given my life for gladly. Comes around and goes, no, he's not. No, he's not. Now apologize to this officer because that's a, that's a very irresponsible statement to make. You don't know him. I do. So thankfully, I had some people on my side who knew the true me, who knew where my heart lies. But the biases in, in the department, you better believe it is. You better believe there's a ton of bias in there. I mean, even it doesn't even have to be anything about color. If they had a bug up their ass about somebody, well, yeah, they're going to go. They're going to go give them some crap. Oh, that happened several times. How, how does it start out with the training and everything? Well, you, you got to prepare for it like anything else. You know, when you when you became a stockbroker, I know you you kind of slid into it through your uh, you just took the test. So you're you're an anomaly. Uh, I prepared for it. I prepared for everything in my life. Even this interview I prepared. I've done tests on this audio and tests and, you know, made sure everything was proper to to be as professional as possible. So I want to always present at that professional atmosphere. But there's there's people in the police academy that don't prepare. Um at the time, I knew people that couldn't even squeeze a trigger, and it's like a two-pound trigger pull. You know, they can't even squeeze that, or they couldn't run a mile. How do you go into a police academy not running a mile? Because I'm a big believer in how you present yourself is how the public is going to see you. So the training is was a lot of physical. It's mental. And believe it or not, so I use the mental training that I learned in the police academy on a daily basis. I, teach, I coach both my kids in football, in American football. And especially little kids, this works really good. If you pick out any individual in there, you need to break them down as an individual and you need to build them back up as a team. All right. So that's what the police academy and that's what the, that's what the uh, military does. You, you break apart their individuality and you build them back up as a team. You build them back up as a family. And now they're going to fight for each other. And, and if anybody does anything bad against one of my teammates, the other teammates are going to step up and say, hey, no, this isn't the way that it is. It's so the mafia does this in, in, in many different ways. They break down that individual and they build them back up as a team. Although there's a lot of holes, there's a lot of holes in the American mafia now. But um, so the training wasn't difficult. The training was more mental. And listen, from my past, from growing up with so much emotional abuse, it takes a lot to break me emotionally, especially from just somebody yelling at you. You know, go ahead, yell at me all you want. I don't care. So the training was nothing. Go for it, Bruno. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of similarities you just mentioned with the mafia. I'm ex-military myself. I was in the army. Um, your training. How does how does your training now, you know, from the police academy, from growing up, how does that affect you now with, you know, moving on past your shooting, past your past your inner demons and everything has it helped you uh fight more i know you have uh i had read that you had a little addiction problem in rehab and everything like that uh does it make you a one-up on just the regular guy that goes into the academy you know um having all that trauma growing up how does that how does that 
play into what you're doing now? So with my with my addictions and stuff, I I I, I was broken. Let's face it, I, I I broke. I was broken. I was a broken individual with every bad behavior that you can imagine. I had it. If um, if you would have put some, if you would have given me some of your ecstasy pills, I would have <laughs> taken absolutely. Which is funny now because ecstasy is be MDMA is being treated used to treat PTS and uh, and and different other different traumas. But I, the the one thing with me, Bruno, is you have to kill me in order to make me stop moving forward. You have to kill me. All right. So that's one of the reasons why I, I, I attempted suicide so many times is because I was, that's the only way you're going to stop me from moving forward. Cause I didn't see a way where I could move forward. My, my training, my training has helped me now because I have that ability just to, to outwork somebody. I always did. I always had that ability just to, if you're going to work a 40 hour week, I'm going to work a 60 hour week. And that's how, that's how I'm going to beat you. I may not be smarter than you. I may not be stronger than you, but I'm going to beat you because I, I will keep moving. You have to kill me to stop me. And for a short time, I felt that I lost that. You know, that's when your life gets a little chaotic and a little bit out of control, but that training served me well. It served me really well. When you got out of training, what was your first assignment? They put us right in the patrol. Actually, you know, so 9-11 happens. I'm, I'm about two-thirds of the way through the academy, about halfway through the academy. And I go, we get recalled to our departments because we really didn't know what was going on. My lieutenant hands me my gun. And we didn't qualify with a gun yet. In order to carry in New Jersey, you have to qualify first. He says, he gives me my gun, and he says, okay, don't shoot anybody. This is good, he says, don't shoot anybody. And then I had to go stand post because we had a couple targets in our town. Uh, North Jersey, and we could see the towers were burning. And um, they put us right in the patrol. And, I mean, the first day, my again, a small suburban town. We, we were, Bruno will know this, we're about 10 minutes away from Newark. So we got a lot of action from Newark. Yeah. Uh, a lot of stolen cars, a lot of chases. Um, but my first day, I get a, I get a dead body. It was a 83 year old woman who dropped in the bathroom. Can you so take us, it. take us through the day? Oh yeah. So I show up at work nervous as hell, <clears throat> nervous as hell, you know, but, but I look good. So the uniforms, my leather <laughs> squeaking, um, <laughs> everything shined, you know, and I'm proud. I'm just proud to wear that uniform. Like the first time you, Bruno, you put on your uniform, you're like, wow, this, this feels good. Cause you yeah. change from the outside in. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you change from the outside in. So my leather squeaking and, you know, the old timers, they look like they, they shine their shoes with a Hershey bar and, um, <laughs> and they're laughing at you. You know, they're, they're laughing at you. So I get in a car and you, you drive with somebody. It's a field training officer, an FTO. And you're, you're going around and we get this call and I could, I won't say the name of the street, but I can still remember, I can still remember it, but it was number 80, uh, number 23. We go in there and there's a woman, 83 year old woman, and she looks like she's a Muslim praying but in a spot that's about that big. And there's no 83-year-old woman that fits in a spot like that. So I remember one of the old timers who, who's a really good friend of mine. He's standing there. He's got his arms up in this little powder room bathroom. And he says, well, we got to do something. We lift her up and I, I start doing CPR on her. And as I'm doing it, I'm pulling her teeth out because she was the teeth were so rotten and pulling them out, pulling them out and throwing them away. Then you bear the chest. Now you heard about all this stuff in the academy. You think it's real good to see a woman's boobs? Well, let me explain something to you about an 83-year-old woman's boobs. They just sort of go to the side. And uh, 
and I'm doing this CPR on her and the uh, defibrillator is hooked up to her. So it's monitoring everything. There's a lot of pressure involved. There's, I'm the new guy. So I'm the one that's pouring sweat and I'm working on this woman. I'm working, I'm trying everything I can, but she's gone. She's gone. So that was the first day. And then, then it was, uh, the second day was I had to, I had to shoot a deer who was injured, which was, was, I'm not an animal killer. Like I, I love animals. So shooting a deer, shooting a deer probably bothered me worse than anything. But then we get a car chase of a theft and it was a theft out of a department store. We catch them and it happened in another town. And back in those days, the glove compartments could magically open, you know, they magically open. So this glove compartment magically open and they're sitting the gun. It's like, wow. Okay. So those first two days gave me a window into, although this job is fun, you'll laugh more than you'll ever laugh in your life. But there are some serious components to it. You you learn, you learn that at any moment this could go. Any crack of that radio, and off you go. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK Amazon, US Amazon company account, US Amazon, UK Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. Um, that, that gun call really, really woke my ass up. But I remember, I remember one of the detectives from the other town showing up, and it was, it was in another county that was a little bit more strict than, than Essex County, where I worked. He, he looked at the guy, and he goes, you did this shit in Morris County, motherfucker. You didn't do this in Essex County. You're going away for a long time. And sure enough, I think the guy got about 12 years for that, for that gun charge. But at the same time, you know, um, I was, you get a lot of, you get a lot of kids smoking weed and stuff. I was a kid. I did all, you know, I know all that stuff. The other part of that job is you, you, you try to be corrective, not punitive. All right. And I was, I, ta- I was taught this very, very early on. I'm trying to correct bad behavior. Sometimes correcting bad behavior causes, you know, you have to give them a ticket and cause them some money. But a lot of times somebody's car just going to work is all jacked up. Why should I write them 15 different equipment violations? I'm just going to punish them. I never wanted to punish kids. So we would catch kids with drugs all the time. And this was the days before cameras. And some people would lock them up, you know, to catch them with a joint, lock them up. Well, imagine if somebody locked me up when I was 18 for a joint, you know, ruined my life, really changed the trajectory of how my life was going to go. So I always had that sympathetic ear with those kids. And, and I would do the toughest thing to an 18, a 17 or 18 year old kid. I'd say, you're going to take that joint. You're going to put it on the ground. You're going to stomp it out right in front of me. And you're going to grind it into the ground. So I know you can't retrieve it because somebody just spent all that money on drugs or 
you know, whatever, and, and to watch them waste it. That, that was the biggest corrective thing I could do. But then I would tell them, you're given a second chance here. It's going to be your choice whether you, whether you use that second chance or you waste that second chance. You know, you don't get too many second chances in this life. I think all of us here are, are pretty fortunate because it seems like we all got that second chance. I did that numerous times, but I know people that got really mad at me for doing that. But some kids are stupid too. Like there was one, there was one where we caught a bunch of kids partying and I was with a sergeant who was a little, little bit of a hard ass. And I said, all right, you guys got five minutes to search yourself. And this one kid, he goes, well, I got weed. Like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> like, come, come on, buddy. I, I was dark out. All you had to do was throw it down. I would never have seen it. I knew it. I knew it. He, he goes, I got weed. I go, you son. Oh, man, what's the matter with you, kid? And I get the kid in the back of my car. I was so mad at him. I go, you little son of a bitch. You know how much paperwork you just caused me? I was trying to give you a break. I knew what you had. So some people are their own worst enemies. Bruno. So I, I have I have a little bit of a story on myself. Kevin, you're going to understand this. They have precincts back in back east in, in Brooklyn. I'm in the 61st precinct. I'm like 10 years old. Uh, I got a stolen car. I think I told Sean this story. I got a stolen car on Avenue U. I'm in front of a store. Five detectives pop out. You know what I mean? And uh, they're like, what are you doing? I said, well, my mother sent me to the store. I got a stolen car. <laughs> I got a big screwdriver on the front seat. They're like, they're taking me home, Kevin. They're not taking me to the precinct. They're taking me to my mom and dad to beat the shit out of me. Oh, that's the worst in the world. Right. So I, I, I guess where I'm going with that is how did you, you know, decipher? I mean, these guys would never arrest me. They didn't want to do the paperwork, like you said. You know, they gave me 9, 10, 11 different chances. How, you know, you say you got a hard ass with you. I mean, is it hard for you, you know, knowing you're, you're a kid, you grew up in the same thing. You know, you don't want to arrest these guys. How, how do you do it? How do you internal, do you fight with yourself internally over that? You know what I mean? Well, there's a couple of different factors that come into that. It's number one, you, 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 I think there's certain people in this world that have a feeling for other people. You know, you, you made a mistake. You're not necessarily a bad kid. Big difference, right? You're not a, you're not a hardened criminal. You're just a kid who is being a kid and, and and doesn't have the forethought to think how this could affect your life. Um, it now so that's one thing. So it's 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 a feeling. It's really a feeling. Second thing is how many times have I come in contact with you? Is this the first time I've done it? Is this the second time I've done it? And the third thing third thing is is how did they were they respectful? Were they sorry? Um, did you see that they were scared or were they, or were they brash, brazen, disrespectful, you know, in any line of work, you're going to treat somebody who is respectful and honest towards you versus somebody who was disrespectful to you, you know, and if they showed, if they showed disrespect, yeah, you're going to write your, you're going to write your own summons. You're going to write your own arrest warrant on that one stuff. So it, it was, it was, I, I go on gut feeling a lot. I trust my gut feeling a lot. And it served me well sometimes. Sometimes I've gotten bit in the ass by it. But with these, it, it, it really depended on the, the crime, the situation, the feeling, how they treated me. There was a lot of different factors that went into, but you have to, you have to develop those over time. That's why worst thing in the world is to get around by a young, by a young cop, because they're going to do everything by the letter of the law. Because there's, there's times in my career where 
I've, I've had my ethics questioned, you know, by myself more than anything else. Like back, back when I first got on, we had a towing company that always worked in town and I go in, I go in my mailbox in, in the department in Christmas, and there's an envelope in me. I'm like, what the hell is this? I open it up. There's $40 cash. This, this doesn't seem right. Like this, this really didn't feel right. So I, I go to my captain and I say, uh, Hey, I, he goes, Oh no, they give us Christmas presents. They give us Christmas presents. I said, I don't feel right taking this. I gave it back to him. Fucking captain caught, kept the money. I kept my money. Talk <laughs> so, to that, Kevin. Why do you think now in this day and age, 20 years later, I mean, you started out right around uh, 2001. Why is it so different now that everything is so cut and dry? You get stopped and you got a light out. They're towing your car. They're taking you to jail. Why is it so much different now? Or maybe it's just where I'm at in the United States, but is it still that way in Jersey? They still let, hey, get that fixed. Get the hell out of here. I don't mind. There's no, you know, it's just cut and dry now. Why is that? There's so much pressure on the police now. You know, they're, they're wearing body cams and they're, they're afraid. They're more afraid of the administration. So you have those people in the administration and the higher ups that don't give a shit that you're trying to be correct. You're trying to correct a bad behavior. They just care about the letter of the law. They care about liability. They don't care about safety. They don't care about correcting any problems. So these cops are under an enormous amount of pressure from their higher ups. That's one thing. Second thing is, well, let's go back to how they're being treated. Cops as a whole are being treated in the United States like garbage. They're trying their best. They're really trying their best. And for you have something like uh, the Michael Brown shooting out in Ferguson, uh, Michigan, um, the guy was a criminal, okay? He tried to steal the cop's gun, all right? The cop shot him. Tragedy, tragedy. But that cop's life is over for doing his job. He's, his, he had to move away. He had to quit his job. He had to, his life's over. So there's so much pressure and discretion within the police. When I first got on, you had a lot of discretion. Discretion within the police is shrinking so much that they're under this window. I, I, I have a lot of interaction with police now and the way they, they have to operate with a drug arrest is crazy. It's crazy. It's, you know, you catch somebody, unless you're catching them with bricks and bricks and bricks of hard drugs, it, you know, heroin or something where they're trafficking it. And, you know, these guys are putting shit into it to, to, that are really killing people down the road. You, you just let them go. You just let them go. In New Jersey, they had a pursuit policy. You get a stolen car. That stolen car could go past you and wave, and you can't do anything. It's changed. It's just changed. And because of it, you know, the, there's a lot more police chases now. But um, On police chases, Kevin, you said there were several in your early years. Can you take us through your hurriest police chase? Hmm. I'm on, um, I'm on Route 280, and, and the way a police chase, there's, there's the the New Jersey attorney general puts out the police pursuit policy. There are certain rules that we have to follow. Now try to try to think of every rule as you're doing 70, 80, 90 miles an hour. And these young kids, these young kids can drive. I mean, they can drive. So you're in a, you're, they're in a superior car. You're in a crown Vic and you had, you used to have to get behind them, call out your speed, call out the traffic as you're driving everything, you know, and, you never really 100% tell the truth. You're like, yeah, I'm doing 75 miles an hour, traffic's light. And meanwhile, you're doing 110, you're doing 120, and you're weaving in and out of traffic because it's it's a game. But these kids, wow, these kids could really, really drive. 
So there was one in particular. It was a it was a blue Audi. Kids were kids. You know, they, they, they're good at stealing stuff. I watched them on camera steal. They're in a car in five minutes back in the day when, when they could just do it with a screwdriver. They're in the car in five minutes and they're gone. And they're gone. Um, the, car, the car takes off and I bet you that kid got up to about 145 miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic like I've never seen before. And the kids in the back, you could see they're looking at us and they're laughing, they're pointing and everything. But by far the worst one was there was a car that was being delivered at a new car dealership. Kid steals it. Keys in the ignition. It was a, it was a Lexus. Uh, comes around the corner, bumps one of our police officers and, and takes off down the road. Now, one of my fortes was accident investigation. So that's what I love to do. I love the math that was involved in it. He comes flying down the road. He loses control. He hits a berm doing 77 miles an hour, hits a fire hydrant, throws the fire hydrant 310 feet, hits a tree that was no more than that big. It splits the car in two. The engine goes 111 feet. He drops to the ground. I never seen anything. The, the, the sheer energy involved in that crash was, was incredible. And um, I was there to investigate that. So it wasn't my chase that was the worst one, but the worst, but the worst one I ever saw was that kid the kid unfortunately died um and i remember looking down at the kid because i was right re- i was the first one on scene looking down at the kid and saying wow man you really got your teeth jacked up and then i saw a picture of him and his teeth were already jacked up so it wasn't wasn't because of the accident but that was commonplace so when i first got on they were stealing xenon headlights they were selling them and you you had a stolen car coming into town five six times a day and you get on them and you just go but then, you know, when the when the administration, obviously, they'll break it off. They're like, I'm calling out 75 miles an hour. Like, yeah, I'll, I'm coming back from Newark. Um, well, you don't get to Newark unless you got a DeLorean going 88 miles an hour and you're going back in time. But, you know, I would get into Newark very, very fast because we all knew where they were going. But what we used to do in my town in, in Roseland, New Jersey, there was a, a, there, there was a it was a straight conduit on a major highway going into to where we knew they were going. Years ago, there was a fuel spill on that ramp. They they cleaned it up, but they never fully cleaned it up. So we used to drive the stolen cars into that ramp. And and we knew, like I knew about, you get them in there about 70 miles an hour. The road was still a little slick. I'd drive them in and then just ease off and then they'd crash. I got it. I got dozens of cars just like that. (laughs) So you got to know, you got to know your surroundings. You got to know what you're capable of. But very few people realize, especially in a Crown Victoria, those cars aren't built for 120 miles an hour. Everything's shaking them. You know, you hit a pothole in the road, you're done. So, but the adrenaline, oh my God, the adrenaline was wonderful, was wonderful. So Kevin, let me ask you. So I, I, I know everybody wants to know this, you know, how do you deal with, you walk into a place, you got drugs, you got piles of money. We see it in the movies all the time. I know we're all human. Did it ever happen? For me to take it? Never. No, no, no. For, yeah. I mean, you know, did you not not saying you did take it, but I mean, did the thought go through your mind? Hey, I'd like a new boat. I'd like a new truck. You know what I mean? It's got to be going through your head. Tell so me I, about it. As a police officer, I was never offered a bribe. Okay. In my current job, I've been offered three. <laughs> and my thinking was 
Because again, I always knew that I don't do well in confined spaces. So this would sort of kept me on the straight and narrow. Uh, my thinking was there, you better, you better have about $75 million where I can buy my own Island with no extradition. And that's the only way that I will entertain <laughs> your stuff. But uh, did I, did I stop kids with wads of cash? Absolutely. And I'm like, you're seven, you're 18 years old and you got more in your wallet than I make in a year. I absolutely, absolutely. But the cops who get caught doing that are so stupid because like there, there was one um, guy got caught stealing $75. It, it was a, it was a, it was a canine officer and they were searching the house and the, and they planted it. Like they knew this guy was dirty. He got caught 75, $75. There's a piece of me. Here's how I think of it. Um, yeah, you got caught. You threw your career away for $75, but he did it. That's only the first time he got caught. There are so many cops that, that used to do it on a regular basis. And I've seen it firsthand. You know, you, you see a $10 bill on the table. Nobody's going to, I've seen it. I've seen it. And yeah, why would you do that? Why, you know, you're, you're, t- but again, that goes back to there's certain people in this world that should never be cops because you don't have the men- the, 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 the mentality to be a cop. If you're going to go in there, somebody's calling you for help and you're going to sit there and take advantage of them. Well, you're a predator. You're a leech. And I always look down on those people and I, you know, I, I would never turn them in. All right. I would never turn them in, but you better believe I would lay into them and I'd never trust them on anything because once, the, and all those people do is look for some to get some information on you. So you can never turn them in. It's a sad, so what, sad state what, of affairs. I don't think that do happens you, anymore. What do you think about Eppolito and his partner and, <laughs> Give me your thoughts. No, he was from my neighborhood. I mean, Lou Epolito and Steve Caracappa. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I want to know your thoughts on those guys because those guys were straight killers and they had no, uh, they had no line. You know what I mean? And uh, I never knew them, but I knew of them when I was a kid because I was a young kid at that point. What are your thoughts on them? I mean, do you see that jersey? um, Not. Not to that extent. Okay. Maybe, maybe 30 years ago that that would happen where some people would use police as enforcers. I, I know it certainly happened in Atlantic city. I know it certainly happened several different times where cops were on the payroll. I just don't see that as happening anymore because think about all the hoops that you would have to jump through these days in order to, to be that dirty cop. These guys are wearing body cams. They got their, they're mic'd up. They have this, they have that. They're so inundated with um, administrative stuff where, you know, you, you get a serious call where you have to do four pieces of paperwork. Well, now they're doing upwards of 13, 13 pieces of paperwork. Um, I, I don't think it's happening anymore. I really, really don't. Um, it's just not worth it. Then, and don't forget, too, in New Jersey, and this is different than the rest of the world, New Jersey officers make a very good salary. We get paid. We're, we're some of the highest paid officers in the country. Um, so are you going to hundred thousand dollar job, hundred thousand dollar year jobs do not grow on trees and everybody sort of knows. And that's kind of why they made the salary so large to guard against that impropriety stuff. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I know how it happens because I'm friends with Michael Dowd. All right. Michael Dowd from the seven, five. Michael Dowd is. Yeah. Yeah. So I I'm friends with him, but the, the thing with the thing with Michael Dowd 
And the thing with both of you is you don't, you're like, yeah, I did this shit. I did this shit. And that's Mike. So Mike, yeah. Mike tells us he, he's calling the Puerto Rican mystery cars. They pull them over. They got no paperwork, but they got a fat roll of cash. And why should I go bring them in? I'm making $25,000 a year having to live in New York City. Why should I go take them in? I'm just going to take a little bit here. I'm going to take a little bit here. And then the first time you take it, second time is much easier. First time is the hard part. Second time, pretty easy. You already got away with it once. And then you become brazen. And then then your mind starts to work well. You know what? Nobody's watching. But I, again, I, I think most of that stuff, there are still some out there, but most of that stuff is gone. Right on. You mentioned earlier about the corpse of the old lady. How many corpses did you encounter over your career? Well, with, with accident investigation, you used to have to go to the autopsies. I got to be honest with you. I loved autopsies. Can you take, take us through an autopsy? Okay. Oh, that's the best thing in the world. Because if you're, if you're, uh, if you're, if you've ever done any type of working out or physical training or anything, and you know, the human body to see the human body in the flesh, in the open air is really a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. You just have to separate yourself from that used to be a human being, but some of the, some of the worst humor occurs in mortuaries in morgues. Uh, I remember there was one where it was an old couple. They slammed into a tree and we had known they'd been to a, a, a food place because I had a receipt, you know, and I said, OK, this is what we know. We know they got we had they had two sausage and pepper sandwiches and and uh, and then they were driving home. They slammed into a tree. The doctor coming in doing the, the autopsy says, what happened? She asked him to go to Walmart and he just wanted to end it, <laughs> you know, and he just slammed into it. It's just horrible. And one of the first autopsies I ever went to was a 43 year old man and he's on the table and he's like this, he had a, he had a heart attack, but I remember he got to develop this really sick, dark gallows humor. I remember looking at the guy, I'm like, doc, you don't need to do the autopsy. He's like, what are you talking about? And I said, I already know what he died of, died of small cocks. I mean, that's what happens. That's, that's what happens. But there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. You're not supposed to see that stuff. Human beings aren't supposed to see that stuff. So you have to deal with it in certain ways. One of the ways you deflect the pain that it causes you inside is to, is to just guard against it with humor. Because as, as a police officer, uh, you see all these different pieces of trauma in people's lives. And it's not only trauma that happens to you. And it hurts because you're a human being. So what you do is every time you see something new, you stack on something new. You stack on a new piece of uh, protection, a piece of armor. And, and so you'll never be hurt by that stuff again. What happens over a 20-year career is you're so heavily laden with armor that you can hardly stand up. And that's, and that's sort of what happened to me. That's why, kind of one of the reasons why I broke as quickly as I did. Because a, a police officer, uh, the, average, the average citizen sees maybe one, two critical incidents throughout their lifetime. Something that might affect them given post-traumatic stress. A police officer in a 20-year career is going to see upwards of 800. Of, of really just bad stuff. What do you actually see in an autopsy? Because I've never been to one. Oh, okay. So I'll, I'll walk you straight through it. So what they'll do is the, the bodies are laid out on a slab. You have the doctor comes in, starts performing the autopsy. They'll take hedge clippers, like branch clippers. And they'll do a Y incision up here. They'll cut that open. And they're cutting ribs. First, they'll cut it with a scalpel. And then they'll come in with the hedge clippers and they'll clip. And you, you hear it snap. Um. This this one and, and here's here's just the detective portion of it where like they'll slit you see a bruise on somebody right here. 
right? This was a passenger of a vehicle where he died. Once they cut that open, you see more blood coming out. Then once they do the hedge clippers, then the blood just pours out because their heart exploded. A lot of times uh, they'll find that they die of an aortic tear. So the, the sudden stop will make their aortas rip and they just bleed out within seconds. So they do that. And then they, they take, a, they, they put these uh, expanders in and they'll crack open the chest. So now I'm sitting there looking at a live anatomy chart. I thought it was fascinating. I, I know, call me sick, call me whatever. I just thought it was fascinating. That's no longer a human being. That's somebody who's passed away. Now this is a medical experiment. They'll take out the heart. They'll weigh it. They know what a normal heart should weigh. They'll take out the liver, the lungs. They'll take out everything in, in between. Then they'll get, and this is the nasty part. They get into the bowel tract. Once they hit the bowel tract, that's where the smell starts coming in. And every, you'll see, you'll see uh, TV shows where they put something under their nose. That, that works, but it's not the best. The best thing to do is put peppermints in your mouth. Um, to this day, I won't eat sausage and peppers. Uh, I'll be honest with you. Because when you see digested sausage and peppers, uh, it's pretty bad. But they'll take, out, uh, they'll take out the testicles. They'll take out everything. Then they'll cut back here. And they'll peel your skin. They'll peel your whole face up and put it right here. Then they'll take a, it looks like a little Dremel tool and they'll cut the skull. They'll take the brain out and they'll show and And they love doing it too, because they'll take out, Oh, this is the pituitary gland. This is the brain and they'll weigh it. And I got to sit there and take pictures of it the whole time because um, with an autopsy, especially what I did is the body is, is part of the chain of evidence and you have to maintain the integrity of the chain of evidence. So I would have to sit there and, and document everything. If you get past the smell and you get past the fact that there there were once a human being, it is absolutely fascinating. If you've ever if you've never seen human fat in open air, it's as yellow. I mean, it's it's like it's like a smile emoji yellow. It's really bizarre. <laughs> chicken fat looks like it looks like chicken fat, right? It's really yeah, cool yeah. looking, yeah. except it's got bl- little blood veins, a little blood <laughs> vessels in it. But yes, yeah, some of the worst humor in the world. Some of the worst humor in the world. But the, the, the people working the mortuary, they got some damage in them, too. You can't see that stuff every day and it not affect you. Now, what happens when you got to do an autopsy on a little kid? Oh, my God. And it happens. It happens. I saw one on a, on a three-year-old. It's, it's bad. It's bad. So they have to release that, too. And how do you release that? So that's why I'm so heavily tied into the mental health community, um, not only with first responders, with anybody who sees that stuff. Cause you're not supposed to see that stuff in your lifetime. So that being said, um, did you ever, you know, you hear about all these horrible, horrible people that have crimes against, uh, you know, infants. Did you ever walk in, in your career on something of that nature? Um, I had never, I, I had been there after the fact where, um, there are allegations of molestation mm-hmm. and the, the thankfully I never had it happen while I had kids because I was always afraid that I remember that, that visceral feeling inside of me when I'm looking at this person going, you did this to a little kid. Cause again, going back to, to the way I grew up, you want to, you want to kill them. You, you just, you want to kill them. You want to beat them bloody. You want to do everything to make them really, really hurt. <sighs> I don't understand how somebody could do that to a young child could really um, 
take away their innocence, really take away, change the change where their life is going to go and be okay with it. And a lot of them get away with it. A lot of them get away with this stuff. And there were signs too, because hindsight's always 2020. There were signs like, well, you know, he did this and he did this and they, they, he groomed this person here and he groomed that person there. One of the most abhorrent, disgusting things I've ever seen in my life is somebody who's taken the innocence of a child. There is a special place in hell for those people. If you're a God-fearing man, I, I can't, I, I can't even begin to tell you my hate towards them. And just to, uh, just to set your mind at ease, and Sean will uh, attest to this, we take care of them when they get inside. Don't worry about it. We got it right or wrong, Sean. We got a special place in there. I know Sean see me go to work on a couple of them. What did, what did you call them in your one interview, Sean? You called them uh, chomos. Chomos. That's it. Chomos. Yeah. I was, I never heard that term before. Yeah, Arizona, Arizona jail slang. Yeah. They, uh, they put him in New Jersey. They put him in a place called Avenel. Yeah. Avenel's Avenel. in South Jersey. Yeah, I heard that. Heard that. Unfortunately, I did a little stint in Bergen County. So, uh, the old, the old one. <laughs> yeah, but that's, that's, uh, that's the rich kid. That's the rich kid area. That's that's okay. I, I was up in Havistraw, New York. I got arrested in Bergen County, but that's that. <laughs> so, so that you never you never actually walked in on, you know, a, a dead baby or somebody. Oh who, yeah, oh, oh yeah, a pediatric a wave or something sick like that. Uh, nothing ever where it was violent. But uh, there was one where a kid was playing hide. This is this is tragic. Kid was playing hide and go seek with his grandmother. The grandmother was watching the two kids. They're playing hide and seek. They, he, she can't find the kid, and the kid locked himself. The kid went into a homemade toy box, and the lid shut, and he couldn't get it up, and he ended up suffocating and dying. Um, it, it was one of the most heart wrenching things I could ever. I could ever witness in my life. Those pediatric patients affect you for the rest of your life. That, that one, the kid, the kid was so blue. We, we worked on him. We worked on him for a long time and there was just nothing to do. Kevin, because of what happened to you as a kid, if you got called out to someone who was abusing a kid, how did you reconcile that in your head? And like you just, you know, you, you mentioned convict justice, that, that was uh, meted out in, in the jail system that, that me and Bruno were in. Did the, the cops have their own form of that? I mean, were you guys tempted not to go directly back to the police station to maybe take a detour? And We had things that we could do on camera. Somebody could film us and they hurt like a motherfucker, but they, you will never see it. You could, it, it's not without, it's not outside of the scope of what we normally can do. First of all, those handcuffs, when you put them extra tight, they hurt. When you rip somebody's hands up to the back of their neck from behind them, that really hurts. When you take your knee and you dip it into their kidneys extra hard, I'm 235 pounds, you get your point across. Um, there's something called a waffle job. Uh, so you get somebody in the back seat, you throw them into the back seat. When, the time, when they finally get up, you, you drive about 50 miles an hour and you hit the brakes. And you just hear him go, boom, right up against the back of the cage. So, yeah, and you get off. And you waffle. just said happened to me, Kevin. Damn it. <laughs> Were you being disrespectful to him? Absolutely. There we go. Nightmare. There we go. You, you, yeah. do, you, you do the waffle job. 
um yeah there's there's those little things where you can it can be easy or it can be super hard and somebody like that somebody who really really did something like that they would be treated very poorly very very poorly you'd give them like one sheet of toilet paper you'd uh you know we in our holding cells you used to you used to have to check on the prisoners there's prisoner log you have to check on them every 15 minutes but there was a pa system you made sure they never slept you know hey how you doing you know you hit the thing just wake them up i don't ever want you i want you to be so exhausted um and that, that was those little things that we could do within the scope to make their time very 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 uncomfortable so we had our ways we had our ways and when they got short sentences, did that frustrate you? Even with my guy, even the guy who shot at me, it does. You know, um, when when you see them, because they can, maybe they could afford a high-priced lawyer. Um, you got that little bit of privilege in there that I don't necessarily agree with. The law is the law, and it should be fair and equal for everybody. Um. Like I told you, my guy got six years for attempted murder. And I've seen people get 20 years for, for low-level drug offenses or um, a burglary or something. And burglaries aren't great because it's an invasion. What a burglary does to, to the people who were burglarized is really, really bad because it, it makes them uneasy to be in their own house. The psychological effects are far outweigh what, it, what was ever stolen. So, um yeah, you know, you check up on it from time to time, but after a while, you just learn not to ask because why aggravate yourself? It's out of your control. There's nothing you can do about it. So you just stopped asking. Bruno. Yeah. Um, that being said, I, you know, if my mother always used to say to me, I mean, uh, we weren't people with, you know, a lot of money, Kevin and, my mother used to say, if you got money, you're never going to see the inside of a jail cell. And it's so true when it comes to lawyers. I mean, Sean was looking at 200 years. He had the best lawyer in Arizona. And thank God he got nine years. You know what I mean? Which on a public defender, they're not going to they're not going to go the extra mile. They're not going to go the extra step. I mean, they get paid by the prosecutor's office, just like, you know, the rest of the government. So you know, we, we come to, we come to like a standoff in the American justice system where, you know, people with money, they don't go to jail and no matter what they do the first couple of times, they're going to get off. Do you see any relief in that? Do you see any type, you know, moving forward now? doesn't matter what kind of a lawyer you got. If you, you kill a baby or you sexually assault your niece, do you agree? Should doesn't matter what kind of lawyer you got. Do you agree these guys should be put under the prison? I I do agree on a personal level, but the one constant that we're supposed to have in this in this world is the law. That's like the one constant. Like when my kids, um, I took a page from a guy named Jack Carr. He and I, I get I already bought him for my kids. I buy them a tomahawk to make sure that they know they always fight for what they love. I bought them a compass so they can always find their way. And I buy, I buy them a leather bound edition of the constitution because the constitution was written in such a way that it should be un unchangeable. Like there's, the, there's very few laws that are, that, should, that are unchangeable. It's how you interpret that law and how that law is bastardized in order to get the people who really deserve to go to prison. They don't get to go to prison. You know, it's, it takes something as simple as like a drunk driving. So, 
years ago, and I'm not sure if it's the same way here. I can't really speak for current current events, but there was an attorney where if you paid five thousand dollars to this attorney for drunk driving, and uh, maybe it was more than that. It was, no, it was it was ten thousand dollars, but you had to pay five thousand dollars for an expert witness. You will get off. There was no no you will get off. Where Joe Schmo, who who maybe one time, you know, he, he doesn't have a lot of money. He's just a, just a working man. He has he has to go in front of the judge. He gets six months uh, sentence, and it really affects his life. It really affects his job. So the more money you have, that's the broken part of the system. That's you know, right. it should be you get caught, you get found guilty. I don't care what your lawyer says. I don't care what your lawyer says. You should get the same penalty as everybody else. That's that's the unfairness of the situation. But unfortunately, here's the problem. We all know life's not fair. So how do you fix it? So, you know, I want to talk about I want to talk about the bail system in the United States. And, you know, um, Sean himself, he wasn't a, he wasn't a violent criminal looking at 200 years. Hmm. Me personally, I wasn't a violent criminal. I was a drug addict that did my crimes basically to finance my, my drug habit. And, you know, nowadays, you know, that whole guilty, you're, you're innocent unless you're proven guilty, this whole bail system in the United States. I mean, you got a drug addict off the street. I don't care if you make his bail $50, Kevin, $50,000 bail, $100,000 bail. How is that fair? How do you, how do you fix what is going on in, in the, in the system now? I mean, it's, you say, and the reason I'm asking the constitution, you know, you're innocent, don't proven guilty. You can, you, you know, you bear arms, you do whatever it is that all these rules were set. They don't work anymore, brother. This is, this is not. So if you take, if you take something as simple as drugs, okay. So we'll stick with, with the drug, drug offenses. Drug offenses stem from somewhere like drug, drug use and drug abuse stem from somewhere. You know, and I, I've changed my vernacular in this. I used to use the word junkie. I don't use the word junkie anywhere because, because it's, it's a neg, it's a very negative term. I use the term addict. So you have all this money going into fighting the war on drugs. This is going to be a real popular on opinion, especially coming from somebody who used to be a cop. I say, legalize them all, legalize them all. And I'll tell you why, because it's like a smoker. If you've ever been a smoker, I don't care if cigarettes are a $20 a pack habit. You're still going to smoke. I don't care if heroin goes up to $50 a bag. You're still going to get people doing it. Only problem is you're going to get people doing really bad shit in order to get that bag. Right. So legalize them all because guess what? If something's, and we're seeing this in New Jersey because marijuana just became legal. It's legal. Doesn't mean I got to do it. Nobody's shoving it down my throat. You know, alcohol is legal. Doesn't mean I got to drink. You follow me? So you're putting all this money into the resources for fighting drugs. When those resources could be used in a better place to find out the the root of, of drug addiction, the root of, to get them help, to get them off the drugs. And then guess what? It just becomes just another thing that's out there. You're going to have people that do it no matter what. And you have to accept that. And it's a hard thing to accept for people. There's people that are always going to have bad behavior. There's always going to be people who drink. There's always going to be uh, people who do drugs and, and so forth and so on. The resources that are out there, we, we could use our resources much better. If that's the thing you asked me to change, and I have no aspirations for politics whatsoever, but that's the one thing you asked me to change, that's what I changed, where the resources are allocated. So, Kevin, 
you started out in 2001. You described how you originally were assigned. You had a partner. How did that change over the years? Did your partner change? Did you get promoted to a different position? <laughs> I, uh, I, was, I took this job because I believed to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. So I never got promoted. There's a reason I never got promoted. Because when I saw something that the administration was doing that was really messed up, I was that voice that said, nope, you're not going to do it. One of the things about me is my vocabulary is I have a pretty broad vocabulary. And a lot of the administrators at that time were old timers. And some of them got promoted because they were really good on their knees. Is that that fair enough to say? So I would go in there and I would over-educate myself on certain laws, case law, uh, contract law. And I would frustrate the hell out of them to the point where they didn't really like me that much. Um, I used to use these two terms with my chief called arbitrary and capricious, whatever he did. That's a arbitrary and capricious ruling. And he didn't know what those words meant. And you'd see him, <laughs> you'd see him get red in the face. <laughs> so in my department, you got promoted by merit. You got promoted by who he liked. There was no testing procedures. It was a very biased system. And I sort of accepted that. But guess what? When I went home and I looked in the mirror, I can look at myself in the mirror. So I was okay with it. Like I, I was okay with it. But at the same time, it hurt a little bit to watch people who were less qualified than me get promoted, move up the ranks, just because they, they were yes men. They said, yeah, I'm not a yes man. I'm not a yes man in anything in my life. Even with my best friends, I'm, I'm, if you're doing something that's messed up, I'm going to tell you, you're doing something that's messed up. All right, let's see, figure out how we can fix it together. I'll help you fix it. I'm never just going to go along with the crowd and say, you know, that that's okay. That's acceptable. And um, so my, my attitude towards administration became much more sour. Um, I saw the hypocrisy in that, but it never deterred me from doing my job. One of the things that, that I did change is, um, is my, my time inside the department really, minimize because before I went, I, I was under so much stress from administration because they were just, you, you know, you had to be better than everybody else. Cause the minute you, you made a hiccup, they were coming down on you. They charge you, you'd lose days. You, you know, you, there's a possibility of losing your job. So that stress really built up inside of me. So before I go out on the road, I throw up. And then once I was out on the road, I was fine. I was fine. Um, and I just learned to, to be, I had to be a better cop than everybody else. That's just the way that's the, so I, I really immersed myself in that job. I knew all the different walls. I knew our contract back and forth. I knew our rules and regulations back and forth because in order to beat somebody, you, you have to be, you have to be more educated than them. So it never changed my attitude. So can I, can I ask you then, so moving forward, we'll move out of, uh, you know, the whole, PTS that you have and you notice I'm not using the D anymore because I agree with you it's not a disorder we all have it yep. that PTS how did that lead you down that dark road you know and how did you catch yourself because I've been sitting in a in a cell by myself locked in a cell for seven months I, I would be lying to you right now if I didn't tell you I'd sit and think about well you know what if I just hang the you know, hang the, the sheet over this and who's going to miss me? How, how did you, 
how did you prepare? How did you, how did you get out of that funk? Cause I know it and I know it well. It was a gradual descent into, into really the depths. And you, you, you hear, you hear about it all the time. People, people going out on, on post-traumatic stress, but you, you, even me, I, I would say, ah, oh, you're full of shit. You're faking it. You're trying to get your pension. It wasn't until I experienced it that I really understood it. So after my shooting, my, my wife, you know, and think about her, her post-traumatic stress, her husband almost died doing his job. And now he's coming home. She tries to just get me away the next night after my shooting. I was off from work because they gave me a few days off. We go out to the movies and we see a, a comedy. We see a comedy in the movies. And in the comedy, there was this part where there's a loud bang. I started having the worst panic attack I ever had in my life. I, my heart started racing. I started sweating. I started getting jumpy. And I, I get up because I don't want to alarm her. She's been through enough. I get up and I say, um, you know, I'm just going to go to the bathroom. And I just go outside and I can't catch my breath. And I can't. I just can't go back in there. 15 minutes goes by. She comes out. She goes, you all right? And I was like, yeah, my stomach kind of hurts and go back in there. I'll be in in a little bit. She says, no, nah, let's go. So that was, something was off. Something was off. That night I had a, a really bad nightmare. I was so wet when I woke up. I had to change. I changed my clothes twice during the night. I changed the sheets. I thought I pissed the, pissed the bed. And then, um, so that day or the, that weekend, we go down to see my parents who still lived in the Atlantic city area, take the kids down there. And, um, my son spills chocolate milk on the seat. He's three years old. I start throwing things. I start losing my mind. I start yelling at the kid as if he was, if he was my mortal enemy. Um, that ride home, my, my wife was begging me to get out of the car. We're on the garden state parkway in New Jersey, major highway. My wife is begging me to let her out of the car with the kids on the side of the road because she, she was getting really nervous. And that was the start of me not sleeping. And when you don't sleep, it gets even worse. I didn't know what was going on. I figured I was stronger than this. So what do you do? Start taking a couple drinks, start taking a couple drinks. I go to the doctor. The doctor gives me Klonopin. Now I'm drinking with Klonopin. It's, it's actually me. Benzos, man. Ooh. Benzos are the worst because it makes, you know, where you used to drink a fifth. Now you can drink a half of a fifth and get, and get drunker. And it was just down and down and down and down until, um, I think the thing that really broke me, because here's another thing too. Uh, as I started going down, I'm out on workers' compensation. They, I know I can't go back just yet. So I start carrying my gun because I'm not sleeping. I'm getting paranoid. Um, even though this guy that, that shot at me is in jail, I just start thinking people are out to get me. So I'm carrying my off-duty gun. My son, I don't like loud bangs. I can't sleep. Um the loud noises are just killing me. I'm I, thunder and lightning storms. I hide in a closet. My son points a toy Nerf gun at me. Um, and thankfully, I, I don't think he remembers it because I do ask him from time to time. But I ripped the toy gun out. of. He points it at me. I rip it out of my hand, out of his hands. I like turn it around as if he was pointing a real gun at me. I snap it in two. I throw it in the garbage. I go out and I live in the woods for three days. After that, I, I turned around, no emotion, turned around, walked out the house. And that was the last time anybody saw me for three days. And I parked my car in a, in a spot. I turned my cell phone off. I threw it in the car and I just went out in the woods. And I don't know whether I was going to, I was going to shoot myself at this time. I just needed time away to think. 
and I'm sitting there, I'm sitting up against a tree. I didn't sleep for, for several days. I finally come home and everybody says, you know, something, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Um, I, w- I, I, not sleeping is the worst thing in the world. Cause I was up at two in the morning one night and I had enough. I, I, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to have these feelings anymore. I felt weak. I felt emasculated. I felt deballed. Uh, my family's going to be better off without me. You know, if I kill myself, they're going to get a nice payout from life insurance and my pension and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm this monster that I don't want my kids to remember me like this. So I go in my office. I had a um, chief special 38 nickel plated. I had hollow point bullets in it. I uh, put it in my mouth, write the note. I write the note first, obviously. And, you know, I'm sorry for, for being this way. I didn't mean this. I didn't ask for this. I just, I'm, I'm not, I can't do this anymore. Put the gun in my mouth and I'm, I'm bawling crying. And I just, I'm, I'm going to die. I, I just, my only way out. I got no other way out. I have this, I go through the whole incident in my head and I just have, and I've told this so many times and I, I just can't wrap my head around how I got to this place. I just have a pause, just a brief pause where I take the gun out because I can still like to this day, I can still feel the barrel on my tongue. I can still feel the sights on the, on my teeth. I can feel everything from the ridges on the trigger to the way the hammer feels when I cocked it back. I had black lightning grips on the gun. I could feel all the ridges on there. I can feel everything about it. And I had turned around. So my thumb, my thumb was in there. The only thing I'm thinking about as I'm doing it is just do this right. Don't fuck this one up because I don't want to have half my head and have to live in on a, on a tube the rest of my life. But I pause and, um, you know, I now know that that pause is just my, my higher power telling me I'm, I'm, I got a little bit more to do here. I'm not through yet, but that, you know, and, and think about that. Think about what I just did. If I would, if I would have gone through with that, my kids were sleeping upstairs. My wife's upstairs. They, there's a likelihood that my kids would have come down and found their father with their head blown off, with his head blown off. My wife would, my wife would have had to raise these two kids for the rest of her life. And my wife's a good looking woman. So she, she probably found somebody else much better than I was. So that, again, that's all the stuff that goes on in your head. The the big lies that you tell yourself. Um, now that wasn't the first, that wasn't the last time, but I'm drinking so heavily now. I'm just morning till night. I'm drinking cause I'm not working. I'm not sleeping. I got nothing to do. People are calling me to check on me and I don't want to talk to them. I'm like, I got nothing to say to you. You know, um, not that I'm mad at them, but you also don't want to let anybody know that you're so weak. It got so bad and I, I stopped trusting myself. So I, I shipped my gun off to a friend of mine. I put it in a lockbox. I say, you got to hold this. And when I did that, people knew that I was I was in some serious trouble. Like I've tried to hang myself. I tried to drink myself to death. I tried to um, take so many pills that I just OD which sucks because then you just pass out and you wake up with a massive headache um, to the point where it, it, it brings me to rehab. I had to go to rehab. I think it was the day after Thanksgiving. 
and I go down to this place and, and I found out, like I said, I don't do well in those situations. And here's a, here's a funny story. So I get, I get put in a room in rehab and nobody knows I'm a cop. I'm still on at this time. I'm, uh, this is kind of the breaking point where I knew I, I could no longer go back to being a cop and I had to retire. So I get put in this room in rehab and the guy's a guy's an addict. And he's like, Oh, what are you in for? And I was like, oh, I got a, I got a tiny alcohol problem. And he goes, I said, what do you got? And he goes, I got, uh, I got a drug problem. I said, were you arrested? And he goes, Oh yeah, I was arrested. And I was like, okay. And I said, where are you, where were you arrested? I was arrested in this town in South Jersey, same town. My brother's a cop. In. Like, Oh, fine. like I, I don't even have to say anything else. I already know what's going, what's coming next. And I was like, and he's motherfucking the cops. He's, oh, he's a fucking cop. This did this. You remember the cop's name? He goes, oh, I'll never forget the name. The guy says my brother's name. Nah. <laughs> of course. And I go, I just like, this is my, this is my lot in life. This is my luck. I, I, de- I deserve this. Like I deserve this. So I had to sleep with one eye open in this guy. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a threat or anything, but uh, I, I learned, um, I, it scared me straight. Okay. When I got out of there and I checked myself out, I said, I'm done. I'm done. I'm not, I'm never coming back here. I'm never drinking. I'm done. And thankfully I have it. You know, I I've lived my life sober since then. And I started going to group therapy. So you two know each other because you two connect with each other because of, uh, because of your prison time. And the three of us connect to each other because of post-traumatic stress. So you find out that there's so much more that connects us than tears us apart. You guys did one side of you guys are on one side of law. I was on the other side of law. But guess what? I can connect with both of you because I can't imagine the depths of pain that you went through sitting on alone, sitting in a jail cell, not knowing where your life's going. Your your life is in total chaos. So I go into group therapy with a bunch of like minded people because it was all officers who were involved in shootings. <clears throat> you start feeling a little normal. You start joking around with each other like you did in your former life. You know, when you were associating with you, breaking each other's chops, having a good time, but learning, learning how to deal and how to get back to somewhat normal life, learning little tools. And I was very lucky. I had a, a doctor. He's in a, his name's Dr. Eugene Stefanelli. He's an old Italian from Newark. And he is able to speak to us in a certain way that I identified with growing up around a bunch of Italians. And, and he works with specific, specifically with cops and he doesn't pull punches. He's not very clinical. He's not very antiseptic when it comes to his speech. He'd be like, bro, you're fucked up. What's the matter with you? That's how he'll talk to you. And that's the stuff I can identify with. So when I start moving out of, you know, I start going through this group therapy and I'm starting to get a little bit, little bit better. I retire from the police department in June of 2014, officially, officially retired. And now at that point, I could have stopped. I could have stopped going to group therapy. I could have stopped meeting. There's something in me because it's the same reason I became, a, I, I love being a police officer is because I loved paying forward the things that are taught to me. So I hang on in group therapy and I help other people through their trauma and their pain. And guess what? I started really feeling better. Like I started feeling with a, I had a purpose once again, I had a purpose and I would be very blatant and honest. Cause I could be very blatant and honest with these guys. I'm like, yeah, I had a gun in my mouth. Yeah. I drank myself almost to death. Yeah. I, I, I tortured my family. I called my family every name in a book. My poor wife got remotes thrown at her. She got spit at, she got called every name in a book. You know how many times I've called my wife the, the C word when I was in my, my darkest place and she's still with me. How does that happen? 
How does that happen? Because there's some people out there that, that are for you. Like you're not a worthless piece of shit. And um, so helping people is really what keeps me on the straight and narrow. That's what really gives me purpose and helps because I'm, I'm a very purpose-driven person. And I think most people that come from abuse, come from abusive families, are purpose-driven and help-driven people. I really, really do. Wow. So, so coming out of that darkness then, how did you get back on track? Uh, I had a, an old Marine that would stop past my house every day. He was the only one that came, and, and I didn't want him there, but he just stopped by. He was a builder. <laughs> and he, was, he, he was a builder, and he just would stop by because he, he knew, like he knew what was going on. And he, one day he tells me, he goes, you're going to, you're coming to work. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm coming. I said, no, I'll come and help you. You know, it's fine. He goes, no, I'm paying you. You're coming to work. And I started getting into the construction. I had been doing construction. I did construction since I was a little kid, but I started getting into it. And there's a lot of freedom in construction. You know, you have a problem with somebody in life. Now you got to talk it out. You know, you got to, if you're in a corporation, you got to go to HR, you got to do this on a construction site. You have a problem with somebody, you bang it out. And guess what? Everything's good. Yeah. Everything you get back to work, you get your job done. So there was a yeah. lot of freedom and it really just helped me stabilize my mind. But also there was another, there was another one of my angels who really just laid on me and, and, and helped me get back into normal life. And the, I would still go to group therapy. I would still do all this stuff and I'm still in the construction field, but I'm in this whole new field now where I reach out to people. And if I find out an officer's an officer involved shooting, I'll say I'll find that officer clandestine of everything. I won't go through their department. I won't. I'll just sit down with them, take them out to lunch and I'll let them unload. I'll let them and they're, they're going to unload to me because I've been there. I've been through that stuff. And I'll tell them, you know, I'll sit I'll sit there and I'll identify certain things that are saying I'm like, I need to go talk to this person. You need like I, I got resources that are available because I've been through those resources. I can't treat them. Obviously, I'm not a clinical psychologist or anything like that, but I have resources available of people who can. I've been to rehabs. I, uh, I have those resources available for people because all you want to do when you're in that deep, dark place is just numb it and numb it and numb it. And that's the worst thing you can possibly do because it's going to grow. It's going to grow and it's going to get you. So I'm, I'm still not out of it. I'm much better than I was um, nine years removed from the situation. Hopefully one day I will have no more nightmares. Hopefully one day um, I can think of it more as a fond memory. One of the things that I would always want to do, I always wanted to do, and I said it a little bit in the beginning is I want to sit down and I want to talk to this Anthony Vocatora who shot at me. I can never sit there because the, 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 the person that abused me as a child, they're dead. Um, and I try like hell to, to forgive them because they probably had some trauma in their past as well. I'm not, that's where I'm not there yet. And this is, believe it or not, this is the first time I ever, I ever really talked about that portion of my life, but I'm starting to learn that I think it has a little bit more to do with the way that I live now and, and the things that I went through. You know, the, what, what you just explained, it's the most embarrassing, humbling, uh, 
it's it's the worst feeling in the world when you're embarrassed about something. You got to humble yourself and say, you know what? I'm fucking addicted to this. I can't stop drinking. I'm on these fucking pills. So from what you went from, you're so lucky that you got it. You took it. You know what I mean? You were in that, re- you know, you didn't want to go back. Isn't that something, Bruno? Isn't that something, Bruno? You, you're, you, I feel the same way. Just so you know, yeah. I'm, luck- I'm lucky. I'm lucky I was shot at. I'm lucky I was addicted. I'm lucky I, I tortured everybody. I'm lucky. And- because you're here right now. Correct. Correct. And the, the amount of balls, I say this all the time, the amount of balls it takes to take that gun out of your mouth. You know what I mean? I envy you, sir. You know what I mean? And what you're doing now is kind of like what I'm doing. Everybody asks me, how come you're spilling all your, you know, your prison stories, your this, your that? I said, because if I could reach one person where they won't do one fucking day in jail or prison and see that an ex-drug addict, you know what I mean? Like me, I got lucky. I'm lucky to be here. Sean's lucky to be here. I envy what you did because it takes us a, a sack and a half, my brother, to go in there and say, hey, I'm fucked up and then get it. Yeah, well, you got to but you can't you. So for both of you, when there's people who got you out of your stuff, it doesn't end there. Like that stuff's not for free. Nope. You have an obligation now to take what you've learned and pass it on to the next people. And that's what somebody did for me. And that's what somebody I'm assuming somebody did for both of you. You now that that's not that that shit's not for free. Yeah. You didn't have to pay money for it, but now you got to give it to somebody else. Look at look at Sean. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke up his ass, but, you know, here's a guy that went to the United States, ended up jail, prison. I mean, this guy was swimming with sharks. Look at this man now. Look what he's done with his life. Look at the message that he has where he could have came out fuck all you you know what i mean he's putting it down that we can live after we have problems we can help other people i envy what sean is doing i'm so proud of him i'm proud of you i don't even know you really well i I feel like me and you are connected in a in a way that we'll talk after the show absolutely absolutely people do not know what we've been through and, and and i envy you i just wanted to put that out Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate that, Bruno. And you're doing the same now. And Kevin, how did you get into the podcasting? <laughs> so I, I always I always enjoyed the, the, the dynamic of group therapy and the feeling that it gave me of normalcy to overcome really shitty situations. So lockdown happens. And, you know, I, I listen to a lot of different podcasts and listen to yours for some time. And um, I was like, oh, you know what? That seems like fun. I don't know whether I'd have a voice or anybody that would want to listen to me. So during lockdown, I said, I remember telling my wife this and and she's used to like my. Spur a moment things. And I said, you know, I'd like to start a podcast. So in my basement, I built out a studio um, and I just started doing audio podcasts. And I brought, I brought a friend in one of the guys from therapy who'd also been in a shooting. And there was like a, there was a dynamic. His name is Mike Felice. There was a dynamic between us where we could pick each other up and we really just get through this stuff and, and show people that that there's strength in suffering. There's success after suffering. It's where you are now does not mean that's where you got to be. 
And it started growing in popularity. It started people, we would get these really weird guests and um, with these unbelievable stories where some of them you're like, damn, damn man, it's, it's, it's tough. And I enjoyed it. And, and again, that, po- that part of me that tries to help people to get through their stuff means so much to me. So do we lose Sean? No, keep going. It's just my camera <laughs> oh. battery. Keep going. Oh, okay. Um, so I just started go- keep going and keep, and it just started growing and growing and growing. And um, I mean, we've been doing it. We just recorded episode 96. Wow. And we, it's, it's an, it's an amazing journey. Cause I have this group of people now and it, it's adding to my, to my gun belt of resources that I have. All these different people, like if I know if, if somebody comes to me and say, hey, this uh, this woman's being abused. OK, well, let, I'm going to speak. I'm going to let you speak to this person because they've been there. I'm not an abused woman. I have no I have no understanding of what that's like. So, but this person does or, um, you know, Bruno, somebody like you who's, who's did some stuff in the mafia. Well, OK, I got some friends who are in the, in the mafia that are friends of mine now that I can I can get you in contact with. And you can you can gel with them because you're only going to gel with people who totally understand your personality. And um, it's it's been one of the greatest joys in my life that to to reach out to people and to get their stories out, because one person hears it, just one person. They're like, okay, well, they made it through. So can I. I can do it as well. And, um, you know, I'll do it for as long as people want to listen to me. And you learn so much as well, don't you, from interviewing people about life and it's so inspiring. It's crazy. It's crazy. And it's so much fun. It really is a lot of work. People don't realize it's a lot of work. You just don't get a camera and a microphone and and get going. It's a lot of work, (laughs) but it's incredibly rewarding. And again, all all I've done is taken one profession where it's it's purpose driven and you want to get out there and help people to i can't do that anymore but i can do this and it's the same mission it's just not the same uh, way of doing it did you say you were working with johnny elite i've i've done a lot of stuff with john i've done a lot of stuff with john john unfortunately just lost his daughter so he's a little bit off the radar um yeah he lost his daughter it it was it's it's a bad thing and um i feel for the guy but john john's an interesting guy so you know john we were, uh, he came down into my basement. Like he, imagine, imagine, imagine trying to sell this to your significant other. Uh, yeah, he's only killed like 20 people. Don't worry about it. <laughs> he's reformed, <laughs> but he's good. <laughs> but John and I struck up this because, you know, we, he's got post-traumatic stress. You know, you can't go out and do that thing, those things to people without it affecting you long-term. There's consequences to those actions. And John, um, if you if you go out to dinner with John, he is in completely different person and go watch him on Fear City on Netflix. Like my wife's watching him, like, yeah, that was the guy. He's like, he was laughing when he came down. I'm like, yeah, because that's a character. You don't understand. The biggest gangster move, I tell you, it's the biggest gangster move I ever saw John do. We're out to dinner at a place called Rails in um, in Monville, New Jersey. And we're eating dinner, we're talking, we're talking business. And there's a group of females. John always is dressed to the nine. Like, I'm not. I'm not that guy. But John's always dressed to the nines. There's a group of women at the table. And they're all looking at him. They're all eyeing him. And I see him eyeing him. I'm like, John, those girls are looking at you. And he's, he keeps looking back. And I said, I'll tell you what. Here's $20. You go up to their table. You don't say a word. 
and eat something off of one of their plates and then just walk away. There's $20. <laughs> the minute he gets up, the minute he gets up, I'm like, fuck, I just lost $20. He goes over to him. He grabs one of their appetizers, eats it, and takes the $20 and throws it on the table and says, here, give that to the waitress. And you just heard, like, fluid hitting the ground from all the women. He's like, oh, <laughs> you son of a bitch. But we've had, we've had some good times. We've had some good times. The, the, some of the fun times, because uh, I've been around him and Mike at the same time, Mike Dowd. And people always people recognize them, but they don't recognize me, which is beautiful. But they'll look at me and they'll go, all right, I know you and I know you, but who the hell are you and what have you done? Like, I could have made up anything I wanted. I'm like, nah, I'm, I don't know. I'm not these guys. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But John's, John's much different in person. And then you, and maybe I'm blowing his, his charisma or his character, but he, he's a guy who likes to laugh, who owns what he's done. And he's trying to make a better life for himself and, and help others in the same time. I've done, I've gone out and done speeches and you see his, he's got that charisma when he, when he talks to people. Oh, the Brazil prison story he told us on our podcast. If your viewers are watching this, check out the podcast we did with John Elite and Wildman and the Brazil prison stuff. Oh, <laughs> I thought Arizona was rough. Bloody hell. As he, as he, told, as he told you the Brazil, it's like they're like the gangs are like fighting to the death. He told me one where he was shoving stuff up his rear end i'm like john i don't want to hear this man i don't want to hear that part of the story tell me about like the girls that were brought in tell me those stories i don't want to hear that stuff but yeah he gets everybody's got a prison wallet kevin everybody's got (laughs) i guess in desperate times man there's not much else you can do kevin uh, Kevin, this this has been an epic podcast is there anything you'd like to say to the viewers in conclusion and please let them know where they can find you online so it, I'll, I'll leave you with this is, is where you are now does not mean that's where you got to stay. There's success after suffering. You just have to learn to run towards that prairie fire. And if you learn to give that suffering a hug, yeah, it's going to suck while you go through it. It really is going to suck, but you'll get through it in much in a much shorter duration. And when you're on the other side, there's, there's a lot of beautiful things on the other side that you can grab from all this different trauma. Sean, I can't thank you enough. If if your viewers feel so, so uh, if they like what I said, check out our YouTube channel. Just look for The Suffering Podcast. You can find me on Instagram at Real Kevin Donaldson. You can find the, the Suffering Podcast at The Suffering Podcast. We're on TikTok and stuff, but Instagram is where I mostly am. And I do get back to people. Like I, I, I give my phone number out way too much. That's the problem. And, uh, and then, I, then I get called a little too much. Anything in conclusion, Bruno? I, I, I just want to say you're an inspiration to me, uh, Kevin, uh, to hear stories from the other side. I mean, I, you always got you always got it in your own head how the cops are supposed to act, how they how I know dealing with them and everything. You give me you've given me a new perspective on police and, uh, you know, being human and being. This whole thing for me has been cathartic, soothing. I don't know, man. I just, you're awesome. I'm so glad to have met you. I hope we could talk further, you know, after this. And uh, if you ever need anything, I'm right here. Sean, you know, same thing with you. You ever need anything, I'm right here. We'll connect after the show, Bruno. I promise you. I promise you. you. 
there's there's definitely something about you kevin i feel deeply moved and honored to have you on and huge thank you for spending this much time with us i'm going to urge the viewers if you're watching this on youtube go down and support kevin at his links check out his podcast and we really appreciate you spending time with us today so put what you think about this video in the comments let us know your thoughts and if you want to check out what Bruno has been saying about his time in jail with me. I'll put those links down there as well. So huge thank you to everyone who's watched this podcast this evening. Take care out there, wherever you are in the world, and we will be back soon. Cheers from London. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye. So if you enjoy true crime books, Gadfly Press is proud to announce the publication of Son of the Cali Cartel. You may have seen the Cali Cartel as represented on Narcos. A lot of that was BS. William lays it down in this book, what actually happened. The Cali cartel, they took over from Pablo Escobar. They were the biggest cartel in the world, dealing billions and billions per year, US dollars. And the four heads out of the two most important ones were Miguel, which was William's dad, and his brother, Gilberto. When Miguel went to prison and Gilberto went to prison, William was running the cartel. Could you imagine running a multi-billion dollar cartel? And the DEA, war on drugs, they made them public enemy number one. William got shot up in an assassination attempt in a restaurant. The book starts out with that story. His mates got murdered and he just barely made it out alive. So if you want to check it out, it's available worldwide on Amazon as an ebook, audiobook, and paperback. And the link is in the description box below this video. Cheers. Enjoy the podcast.